No matter what the reason, leaving your home is quintessential suffering because you're doing just that, leaving your home. Whether you're leaving something that no longer serves you, running from something that burns at the touch, running into the arms of something you hope will be fantastic, or being forced into a free fall with no safety net in sight, leaving the past is riddled with fear and what my therapist might call the unknowns. Welcome, I'm your host, Jacqueline Kiosayan Zaragoza, and this is No Visa Needed. Now, let's talk about the laws that make it nearly impossible to immigrate. I was forced to leave my home many times. I moved every three years for as long as I can remember. Recessions took me to faraway countries filled with color and humidity. Losing our house took me to the cold bitterness of cultural otherness, and a need to leave or essentially lose my mind led me back to the place I was born, but that felt like the farthest thing from home. As I got older, I came to think of home as people who tethered me to this life, rather than a warm hearth that we all gathered around at Christmas and penciled in height check-ins on the frame of the kitchen door. It was people within whom I found my home. The smell of someone's hair, the perfume they have been wearing since the 80s, or the familiar touch of someone's cheek to my own, or would grip me from the edge of insanity and yanked me back to my blessings and my awareness of them. If leaving my home was a recipe, it would have been comprised of one part saying goodbye to the loves of your life without whom you don't know how to breathe, one part waking up in a dark room in the middle of the night and not being sure where you are, one part mourning the loss of a life you can never fully or authentically recreate, one part having no one who understands the heaviness in your chest because every immigration story is unique and no two lives are comparable, one part never feeling like yourself again, the self you really liked, and one part feeling so desperate and weak that you can barely face the idea that you actually have to keep on living and moving forward. Hitting bottom is having to say goodbye to people you love and not knowing when or if you'll ever see them again. It's being separated by thousands of miles and oceans and time zones. Immigration is longing. It's the wanting that is birthed from having to do something really hard when you don't want to and truly don't have the strength. Immigration is doing it anyway, even though it kills you. Sometimes, if you're lucky, you're reborn from this death. Sometimes you're not. I was not. I have never been as happy as I was before I left my home. I think of all the people I've loved and the lives that have touched mine, and I know they would want me to be happy, fulfilled. Moving on is the most difficult challenge of all. Immigration sometimes forces you to move on from an idea of what your life is going to look like and who will be by your side as you journey through. Given all the sacrifice, pain, longing, loneliness, and desperation inherent to immigration, why must the law make it any harder? We already are doing something profoundly difficult that we would love to avoid at all costs. Why make it so much more painful? If you have ever known an immigrant, you undoubtedly have heard someone say their reason for leaving their home was to build a better life. There's a reason that is such a common answer. It's because it's true. Why punish someone for simply wanting the same rights and protections and opportunities that you have? 
What does it cost you for someone else to be afforded a chance to flourish? To understand what we're up against, we first need to discuss what a lawful permanent resident, or LPR, is. LPR status is the most important status that a non-citizen obtains before he or she can apply for U.S. citizenship. LPR status is informally referred to as possessing a green card, based on the color of the original permanent residence document issued to LPRs. A green card is obtained by filing an I-485 application. Although the document evidencing LPR status, formerly called a Form I-551, is no longer green in color, it is still informally referred to as a green card. Although the document evidencing LPR status, formerly called a Form I-551, is no longer green in color, it is still informally referred to as a green card. A non-citizen initially granted a lesser immigration status when initially admitted, such as a non-immigrant visa, may seek to adjust their status to that of an LPR. Becoming an LPR is not guaranteed merely because a non-citizen was granted some lesser type of lawful status. Furthermore, an LPR is not guaranteed the ability to remain in the United States indefinitely or to become a United States citizen. Furthermore, an LPR is not guaranteed the ability to remain in the United States indefinitely or to become a United States citizen. Certain grounds for removal, such as convictions for certain types of criminal offenses, can result in the revocation of the LPR status and removal of the non-citizen. Now that we've laid the foundation for the specific individuals we will be speaking of, let's get into it. One way to gain citizenship is by being sponsored. A sponsoring U.S. citizen of a lawful permanent resident must file an I-864 form, otherwise known as an Affidavit of Support. In that affidavit, the petitioner promises to provide financial support if their immigrant family member is not able to support themselves. To demonstrate the ability to provide such support, the petitioner must generally have an income that is at least 125% of the federal poverty level. If the petitioner's income does not meet that requirement, one or more joint sponsors will need to file affidavits of support. And yes, listener, you heard me correctly. 125% above the federal poverty level. 125%. I take issue with this requirement for sponsorship because it essentially functions as an impediment to middle-class people reuniting with family members. Applicants otherwise fully capable of providing for themselves are subsequently barred from immigrating due to the fear of sponsors of not being able to fully provide for another household, serving as a deterrent to filing an I-864. Requiring that an average citizen take full financial accountability for another eradicates the potential for the middle class to serve as sponsors and provides for only the extremely wealthy to host immigrants. Furthermore, the 125% above the federal poverty level requirement is nevertheless devastating to individuals who overcome their fear of sponsorship and seek to file. This amount is prejudicial, as some states have low average wages that do not correspond to the potentially high federal average poverty level. 
Additionally, the mere fact that it is required to be fundamentally in drastic excess of the poverty level is too precautionary, as most applicants are not fully financially dependent on their sponsors. Now, what to do, what to do. Granted the acknowledged systemic xenophobia foundational to American immigration policy, we must fight the powers that be and strive to level the playing field. My proposal is to alter the requirements such that sponsors are only financially accountable for their applicant for the first two years, and that the sponsor must only earn the average wage for individuals in their specified field in their respective state. The two-year accountability clause allows for applicants to settle into their new community, as two years is a fair amount of time to expect someone to take in order to arrange a decent living in a new place. Furthermore, the economic relativism with which I approached the poverty level clause adheres to the school of thought that the government should not expect sponsors to be capable of theoretically supporting applicants in environments potentially much more costly than the one in which the sponsor themselves lives. And just when you thought we had tackled it all, visas come into the picture. There are many different kinds of visas that can be granted all with different preferences and wait times for both application and receipt. F2 preference is granted to spouses and unmarried children of any age of LPRs. However, spouses and unmarried children under the age of 21 receive a sub-preference over unmarried children 21 or older. Ageist? Absolutely. The issue with this sub-preference is that adults, in this context individuals ages 21 and over, should not be penalized for seeking relocation in another country, depending upon the age in which they decided to leave their home country. Many individuals do not file until they are of working age because only then do they seek employment opportunities, a necessity not accounted for in youth. Were you concerned with your long-term earning potential when you were a kid? I didn't think so. And you shouldn't be punished for it. I propose we do not provide sub-preferences for unmarried children under 21, as equalizing the opportunity to gain a visa may boost our economy by enabling the workforce to be granted hardworking and driven individuals who seek to participate in the community and prosper. Another visa one can attain is an F4 visa. F4 preference is given to siblings of any age of United States citizens 21 or older. I also take issue with this provision as sibling reunification is just as important if the citizen's sibling is under 21. I recommend we provide visas to siblings of any age if their sibling of any age is a citizen. As previously mentioned, the wait times for when you can even apply for visas is posted on the Visa Bulletin. This comprehensive website provides information regarding the wait times for individuals from each country who seek to apply for specific visas. The years spent waiting is overwhelming, to say the least. Some people wait decades. Yes, decades. By then, many people have already suffered at the hands of poisonous communities and totalitarian regimes. Should you want to know more, you can access the Visa Bulletin at travel.gov. Because of the long wait times in the queue for many prospective immigrants, some non-citizen statuses may change in favorable or unfavorable ways during the wait due to changes in category. 
The dilemma presented to individuals whose category alters, such as turning 21, marrying, etc., is that they are subsequently penalized by the nature of the visa queue itself. By virtue of the lengthy queue, would-be applicants are set back further into the waitlist by means of inevitably coming of age or getting married, a likely outcome after having waited years to apply. The waitlist essentially holds you in time, stagnant, perpetually waiting, and afraid of enjoying the milestones of life because you might be punished for it. I recommend that the time once spent in their initial category be deducted from the time they must then wait once they have transitioned into their new category, therefore respecting the individual's adherence to the process and equalizing the process by which visas are sought. This initiative will also streamline the process of visa granting and ensure that less of a backlog is perpetuated. Let's say you met the love of your life. Everything is wonderful and magical, and you get married. A real sweet spot in your life. Not so fast, says immigration law. We don't think your love is valid and deserving of the same rights and protections as that of others. A same-sex couple married in a country not recognizing same-sex marriages as legally valid do not qualify as spouses under federal immigration law, i.e., the law of the jurisdiction in which the same-sex marriage occurred must have recognized the marriage as legally valid. Furthermore, immigration law also does not recognize polygamous marriages as valid in the United States, even if the law of the country where the marriage occurred did recognize that marriage as legally valid. These discriminatory provisions essentially function to inhibit same-sex spouses and polygamous communities from immigrating out of homophobic and closed-minded countries that do not recognize their marriages as legal. I propose so long as one country, either the one from which you are fleeing or the one in which you seek to gain access, acknowledges your marriage, then you should qualify as spouses in visa proceedings and applications. After all this, the xenophobia, homophobia, ageism, and racism, everything we've covered is merely a drop in the bucket with regards to the obstacles immigrants face as if fleeing's one home isn't PTSD-inducing enough. Now the law is going to make it almost impossible for reprieve. My father always considered himself twice an immigrant. Once when his family fled the Armenian Genocide and fled to Greece, Cuba, and then finally to Mexico, and when he fled Mexico to come to the United States. Every anniversary of him having come to this country, a flicker of pain and loss streaks across his brown eyes, and I see a pain deeply embedded in his story, a pain hidden from the world who never seemed to care. Immigration is devastation. No one leaves their home unless they need to, and necessity is oftentimes the mother of pain. One day, out of the blue, he told me that the specific anniversary he was acknowledging was not of another year in the United States, but that he had in fact been here longer than anywhere else. Not all anniversaries are celebratory. Sometimes you bite your lips so hard it bleeds to remind yourself that even though the pain is perpetual, you tackled yesterday and you'll certainly tackle tomorrow. Don't consider this a sob story. Consider this a call to action. Educate yourself, be kind, and vote accordingly.
No Visa Needed is a podcast associated with the University of San Francisco School of Law's Immigration Policy Clinic, where taking on tough challenges is the priority. Working through the jungle that is immigration law for attorneys and commoners alike can be challenging, but we're here to help guide you through it. This is No Visa Needed. Subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.